Hello and welcome to the Golf World Podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. Education is under attack. Conflicts around the world, from Ukraine to Syria and from Sudan to Myanmar, have left schools demolished and teachers and students dead, injured or traumatised. Without education, a generation of children living in conflict or crisis-affected areas will grow up without the skills they need to lift themselves and their families out of poverty or to contribute to countries' economies, further exacerbating already declining conditions. It is not just education that children are denied in war zones. Schools are a place of sanctuary for young people. They are somewhere, particularly in developing countries, where children can be guaranteed a bowl of food at lunchtime, a place where they can socialise and be protected. If these places are made inaccessible, or if they're destroyed outright, this sanctuary is taken away from young people as quickly as it takes a bomb to explode. What happens to school children if you take away the school? And looking more broadly at this issue, are schools a prerequisite for education? If the COVID pandemic has taught us anything, it is that education can happen anywhere, not just in classrooms. Is it sometimes preferable, particularly in the most dangerous of areas, to stay clear of schools altogether? and to find alternative education spaces? Here to answer these questions is Mark Summers, an international consultant specialising on youth, peacebuilding, education, security, and countering violent extremism. As an anthropologist, educationist, Africanist, and award-winning author, Mark's career has blended peacebuilding and diplomacy with field research and teaching, and his work draws deeply from experience in 22 war-affected countries over the past three decades. Author of a whole host of fascinating books, Mark's most recent work is titled We the Young Fighters, Pop Culture, Terror and War in Sierra Leone, a book that covers issues of conflict, exclusion, pop culture and concludes with a framework for customising the international response to youth alienation and predatory governments. I'm very excited to discuss this, among other things, on the show today. Mark Summers, welcome to Goal 4. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, great to have you and thanks for joining me. One factor that leads to exclusion from education that we haven't yet covered on this show is conflict. During your career, you've worked in 22 war-affected countries. Can you paint a bit of a picture of what you've seen in terms of education and perhaps a lack of it, should we say, in conflict zones? Sure. Um, I mean, the, what happens in when conflicts start um, is that there is a strong move by humanitarians to keep people biologically sort of safe, protected, shelter, water, very basic biological needs and sort of basic social needs, I guess, to sort of organize people and get them in structures with sanitation and water and food and shelter and so on. Um, but what I've learned in being in these places very in very early stages sometimes is that what, what um, emergency affected people want almost immediately is where's the school? We need our children in school. And the focus is on primary, early primary. Um, and this has been a battle for the education and emergencies field, EIE, um, since the outset, which it was founded in, I think, 2000, um, INEE was the International Network for Education and Emergencies. And, um, and basically, in my research, they're right. The, the, if they're in school, 
um, their trauma levels go down, um, the anxiety goes down, including for parents. It also gives parents um, time to, you know, stand in line for food and look for firewood and, you know, all the things that, that you need to do to, to get yourself restarted in a very, very elemental, basic way. So schools are important for a lot of reasons, um, not just for learning. There's that, what they call that sort of protective element. It's so foundational that it, the, the, the debate and sort of our advocacy that, that's been needed with humanitarians to this day even, um, that you know we have to start it right away as soon as you keep people alive with you know water and sanitation and food you got to get schools going um, and that that basically the point is is that this is an urge from emergency affected people and the focus is on primary school primary 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 and a lot of times donors want won't fund anything that's lasting so it has to be an attempt uh, teachers can't get paid salaries. Um, teachers are also traumatized, um, which is a very big issue. Uh, so, so the focus really is on primary school, the early years, and just getting things, something going uh, for kids. And then eventually getting into literacy and numeracy, that's basic education. And at some point getting into um, primary education, which has to do with connecting it to the you know, the local or the national education system, if they happen to be refugees, which can be very complicated. Um, uh, so I'm not going to go into that. The other aspect of it is that um, it doesn't really include anybody else. And one of the things that has been so, in my view, uh, a weakness in the field, um, not by intention, but in terms of you know, the fallout from this emphasis on early primary is that for as you get older, as an emergency affected young person gets older, the access to education declines dramatically. So sometimes for the later years of primary, it's not there. Sometimes as soon as you, you know, your last year of primary school is all you're going to get. And so system development has not been a focus of education and emergencies, getting it up and running and, you know, making it safe and all those kinds of things that are all important has been the focus. But these emergency affected areas contain vast numbers of young people and they're adrift. Um, and they're generally want to be part, many of them want to be part of education systems, but it doesn't exist. Um, even when secondary education comes in, as an example, or vocational, those are very expensive and they generally well-off, well-adjusted uh, people and young people in stable situations are the ones who get in. So again, the 80 or 90 percent of young people have no chance, including adolescents. So we see huge numbers of children and adolescents that are... Uh adrift, as you say. I want to go into the, some of the factors causing this exclusion. I mean, we see on the news uh, these devastating pictures of schools that have been either intentionally or unintentionally targeted, um, literally with, with bombs and missiles, and they are destroyed. Apart from this obvious and very visible attack on education systems, 
what other factors at play here? Why are these children still excluded if, as you say, a school can be set up in a tent or in a in a community center? Oh, I mean, I'm doing the study now. And I think one thing that's surfacing is that if you were out of school before the emergency, you are not a focus of education systems, of you know, emergency education systems. So, um, and I and I think that that's an important factor. Uh, I think also because of attacks on schools, which you mentioned, um, it can be pretty scary going to a school. And one thing that happens in education and emergencies and actually in development environments also is that education is equated, schooling is equated with education. In other words, the idea is you can only get education in a school. And since schools are attacked, that's crazy. So, but that's the system. And it's very, you know, people are very old fashioned about, you know, people have to go, children have to go to school and learn, right? Sit in a desk. And uh, so even though we have, you know, mobile phones and distance education and all these other ways, uh, remote learning and so on, you know, it, it's part of the field, but to a very, very minimal degree. Um, so one of the traps is, is that education is equated with it, with a school and schools are dangerous, can be quite dangerous in a lot of these emergency environments. There's no question about it. And getting to school and leaving, you know, going back from school, commuting to and from school can be extremely dangerous. So one of the things I think we're going to raise in our study is why do they got to go to school to learn? Um, if we're so worried about girls and girls education. How come they have to do that? What's the protection advantage of going to an actual school? Uh, but that's the way it works. I mean, that's, you know, they're in education systems. And then you have that old fashioned way, like you have to go down, go to school and sit down and open your yeah. exercise book and so on. Have you seen a shift away from that since the uh, school closures of the COVID pandemic? Do you think shift you away think, from oh. you think a shift away from the need to be in school? We saw a lot of examples of remote learning, mobile phone learning, because of the necessity for it when mm. schools were closed during lockdowns. Do you think you've seen a little a move towards that in conflict areas? It's, interesting. it's an interesting question. I thought we'd find more. Um, I think we found less. I think the 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 group the broader you know you have this issue of that you can actually hey you can learn outside of a school. That's cool, but. Um, I think the bigger issue has been uh, a takeaway from the COVID, uh, you know, pandemic is that uh, kids suffer when they're out of school. So actually, I think it's it's um, you know this is this is an impression. It's not scientific, but my impression is is that actually it's strengthened the focus on schools, which can be very dangerous. Even a tent, hey, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> They're attacked. Well, it's interesting you, you talk about your your research. Um, when you work, you talk to everybody. You've said um, from fighters and generals to ex-violent extremists and sex workers to orphans to police officers, teachers, big businessmen, powerful authorities, leaders on the ground, international officials. Why is it so important to speak with such a range of people? Well... Um, to get the full picture, you have to talk to people. And, and, uh, and to give you an example, there was, um, I wrote this book, uh, 
what, three years, four years ago now called, which is basically the research methods I've been using for my entire career. And it's called, <clears throat> it's trust-based qualitative field methods. And the focus on that is to be, is to demonstrate inclusion and to, uh, in your research as much as you can. Um, and that means to not just focus on the ones that are used to being interviewed by researchers. So um, there is, uh, there is a, a friend of mine, actually, a colleague, uh, has written very powerfully and I think penetratingly, Timothy Longman, on the issue of elite bias in these uh, environments where <clears throat> you go into a conflict-affected area and you go straight to the leaders. And if you're a foreign researcher, you know, they know how to talk to you and they know what to say. And then it's very cogent and you write it all down and go back and write it up. Well, there's a lot of other perspectives that are not included if you do that. So trying to be aware of that issue of, uh, of other voices is really important. So to give you an example, in work in the, in, the, uh, in the field, and this is so common now, this idea of, you know, we go through the community to reach people is a ridiculous idea when you see the dynamics of so-called community on the ground. The, the um, in, you know, implicit assumption of communities is that they're inclusive. And when you're on the ground, you often find, particularly focusing on youth, right? A lot of them are seen as bad. The boys wear the clothes too baggy. The girls wear the clothes too tight. They don't respect their elders. Da, 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 da. It's a long list. They don't like their music. You know, they don't come to the meetings. They don't, you know, you know, there's a whole back other. In my, back in my day, you show respect, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, if you've been a teenager, you can identify, <laughs> I think. So what happens is, is if you go through communities, um, you can be dealing with leaders who actually are the actors of excluding a lot of people. They don't want you to meet those people who don't like them, right? Um, this is a big deal in cities, um, for example, uh, because <laughs> um, most people in cities aren't really, you know, in my experience, in these conflict-affected areas, they're not really that encouraged by the government. And the government doesn't have much power or money anyway. So they usually just interact with the police, and that's not pretty. So, um, so doing the, you know, not having that, in my view, to really get an accurate perception, uh, understanding of what goes on the ground, you have to talk to as many people as you can. You have to talk to the power people first, the powerful ones first, and it's really important. But, um, you know, then you have to, I think what I try to do is explain to them why it's important to talk to everybody. And usually they understand that, you know, they're savvy enough to, you know, if I, if they get a debriefing at the end, I don't use names, um, then then we cut a deal, basically, right? You know, you can get the information and they're like, oh, yeah, I can find out what people think that, you know, don't come to my meetings. <laughs> um, so that's why it's so important. You have to really get perspectives. And I think you also have to drop judgment because judgment blocks analysis. You can do your judgment later when you're in the analysis phase. But, you know, if you want to understand a war, you got to talk to commanders and combatants and ex-combatants, whoever you can access. And they're in a war, so they kill people when they, they're thinking in a different way. Um, so 
you have to allow that. You have to be open to that to understand the context. Now, you don't have to agree with anybody, but um, you don't want to preclude judgment uh, in advance. And I think there's a tendency to do that because, of course, it's scary. But as best as you can, the important thing is, is to get as many perspectives as possible. I mean, if it's essentially you're going to base your research on that and end up with what you want to write, right? It's, it's the same with uh, all kinds of research in that area. Do you think that, I mean, stepping away from conflict-affected areas for a moment, do you think that the wider world of education and indeed development could learn from this? Well, sure. I mean, I think, uh, I, I really think this community approach is unintentionally distorting. In other words, people mean well by going through the community. But to reach excluded youth, I mean, it's nonsensical to go through the people that are excluding them. That, that doesn't even make sense. And uh, so so that, I, I think it's important to sort of step back and um, to really be inclusive is not just to talk to the big honchos, which is interesting because my approach apparently for these honchos in the field, uh, the local sort of power brokers, leaders, religious leaders, well, whoever, government officials, all those kinds of people, um, you know, local people who work at the UN, those are the kinds of people who are used to being interviewed. Um, and they tell you a, pers a certain perspective and it's a very good one, but um, quite often they're hiding a lot. Uh, uh, from intentionally or not, there's a lot that they're not telling me. I've had this, this this debate so many times where they'll say, "Why are you talking to them? They don't. They're not educated. I'm educated. I know the situation. I'll tell you everything. You don't need to talk to them." So it's actually uncomfortable for them to see somebody walking around and uh, talking to different different kinds of people because um, they don't see that very often. So, Mark, you're leading the work on an upcoming report entitled Education for Out-of-School Youth in Emergency and Protracted Crisis Settings. Can you tell me a bit about this report? What is the context and what are its aims? Okay, well, it's funded by the Norwegian Refugee Council, actually a part of Norwegian Refugee Council called NORCAP. Um, and we're doing this research on out-of-school youth, and I guess you know, this emergency and protracted crisis setting. So what that means is that, um, I mean, I guess the starting point is this, as you get older in an emergency or protracted crisis setting, um, the your ability to access education decreases. And as I mentioned earlier, generally speaking, after once you hit your last year of primary school, it's over. Um, so, um, so what we're looking at is the, the people who experience sort of the fallout from that, that uh, it's not a policy, it's a situation. Um, and so we're looking at the focus, on, uh, the focus is out of school youth. The other thing is, is that we're focusing on, for this study, on certified education. So the, the issue of certified education is that if we don't say certified education, then the discussion sort of veers outside of the education sector. So certified education uh, mandates that, I mean, sort of suggests that 
we're going to keep this discussion within the education and emergencies field. Um, otherwise, you're not sure what you're talking about in terms of in research terms. Um, so that's the, the that, that's an important part of this study uh, is that we're looking at certified education. So certified education is whatever you know the national authorities where you are uh, approve and certify and accredit um, or uh, an equivalent uh, uh, authority, say, say in Northeast Syria, you know, the government, there is government recognized certified education, but there are other kinds as well because it's not a government controlled area. So it depends where you are, but the, we, the idea of certified is that the, whoever is the education authority is certifying and accrediting the education. So that could be vocational education. It could be secondary education. Accelerated education seems to be the most common uh, increasingly. Um, those are three examples. Obviously, tertiary, you know, university education would be one as well. And I guess the starting point of this research is the overwhelming focus on primary education. Nobody denies it. It's, and as I explained earlier, um, that's how you get started. You get started with primary school. You got to start somewhere. And the unit cost is the lowest by far. Um, it's the easiest to start up. And I think, you know, in terms of protection, it's not a bad idea to start with really young children. Um, I don't think anybody disputes that. Um, and that certainly is not in any way a criticism of the field. But what we're looking at is what's the what's the fallout for all these other people? I mean, we're doing this research at a time when in Africa and the Middle East, um, these are the youngest populations in recorded human history. So there's a lot of children and youth who aren't in school. So this is true, you know, with the... Um, Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh is a good example as well. It's overwhelmingly out of school youth in those in Cox's Bazaar, this camp of over a million people. So um, it's a big issue. It's a big issue in Yemen um, is a, a, another example. It, 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 I guess I could say it's an issue that the EIE field is concerned about, but hasn't addressed, you know, effectively yet for very good reasons, it just hasn't. So that's the, the area that we're looking at. We're looking at um, the orientation of the field itself. We're looking at programs that are provided, certified education that are provided, the few that there are. And then we're looking at the sort of the situation, what's the world of an out-of-school youth in these emergency and protracted crisis environments? It sounds fascinating and I'm, I'm looking forward to it finding out more about it. Something else I'm looking forward to is your new book. It's called We the Young Fighters, Pop Culture, Terror and War in Sierra Leone. So We the Young Fighters is at once a history of a nation, the story of a war and the saga of downtrodden young people and three pop culture superstars, reggae idol Bob Marley, rap legend Tupac Shakur and the John Rambo movie character, all portrayed in an upside down world where those in the right are blamed while the powerful attack them. Their collective example found fertile ground in the West African nation of Sierra Leone, where youth were entrapped, inequality was blatant, and dissent was impossible. Tell me, what inspired the writing of this book, and what key messages do you put forward? 
Okay, well, let's, the first one is how did this, where did this come from? So as I write in the, in the preface, I sort of tell the background of how this, where this book came from. So in the year 2000, I was doing research um, with refugees from Sierra Leone, where this group called the Social Science Research Council. And um, yeah, there was this very remote um, refugee camp that we went up to see at, in the far reaches of little um, Gambia surrounded by Senegal in West Africa. So Senegal is just like, a, I mean, uh, Gambia is like a little finger that goes up into Senegal, uh, follows this river. It's what the British, the deal they cut during the colonial era with the French. So, um, so we're in, uh, up sort of way uh, up river. And they don't see many researchers up there. Um, and the situation was not good. Yeah, backwaters in humanitarian emergency situations. Those are sometimes the most serious because there's nobody there. And so problems just aren't addressed and things can really get bad. And this was one of those cases. So the fact that there were two researchers from outside, the outside world were there, was a bit of a sensation for the refugees. So in order to start, you know, I met with the refugee leaders. There were four of them, all men. Um, and they were very welcome. And I said, okay, we have to have a meeting with uh, basically, I don't know, the elders. But it, was, it wasn't really elders. It was um, adults from the refugee camp, adult representatives, I guess. And it was men and women. There were a few youth. Um, but mainly, you know, youth leaders, but it was mainly adult men and women. And so the next day we start, and it's broiling hot there, and it's 10 in the morning, and off we start. And before I have my, you know, I before I have my questions to ask, just out of, you know, I always do this with refugees. So how did you get to be a refugee? Basically, I ask, you know, so how did you get here? I don't remember the way I asked it, but... Um, as soon as I asked this question, you know, I had been introduced and so on. And so it was very formal. Um, I shook everybody's hand, um, which took a while. And then when we sat, finally settled down and started the interview, I said, I asked this question. So how did you get here, basically, as a refugee from Sierra Leone? This is the year 2000. And there was a war uh, attack in the Civil War called on January 6th. 1999. This is the Sierra Leonean January 6th, not the American January 6th. And it was the day of the attack on Freetown, the second attack on Freetown. Well, the second sort of battle in Freetown. And it was extremely violent um, from the rebels. Ah, and eventually, um, you know, the soldiers defending the government as well. But the, it was an extremely brutal and sort of theatrically violent battle. So most of the people had come from them, when the ones in, Sierra, in uh, the Sierra Leonean refugees who were in Gambia. So when I asked the question, how did you get here? Um, men and women jumped up and started talking about Tupac. And I thought, what, 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 what are they talking about? Did they understand the question? What happened? I didn't know what they were talking about. It was, this was like, Tupac? And I was asking people next to me, what, what is this? And they started explaining, and one by one, it was a very long uh, interview, um, they started explaining 
that in one part of the city, um, the rebels jumped out of vans. They entered neighborhoods in vans, white vans and white pickups. Painted on the side were the songs of their favorite, you know, the most important songs to the rebels of, of Tupac. So All Eyes on Me, Only God Can Judge Me, uh, California Love, Hit Em Up. Those were some of the ones that were on the side. And out they come high as on drugs as you can possibly be, playing Tupac music by on cassettes um, and wearing Tupac T-shirts, bandanas, um, which is something that Rambo uses as well as Tupac, um, and started carrying out these atrocities that, that left these people extremely traumatized, naturally enough. Um, so, and then in the other, and I was trying to keep up the whole time, like, what is this about? And then they were telling me in other parts of the city, um, rebels came out in Bob Marley t-shirts, playing Bob Marley music and smoking a lot of marijuana and doing their terror tactics in that part of the city. So I was... I was really stunned by this and fascinated and tried trying to keep up. And what happened, that was the year 2000. What happened is I, everywhere I went, I started asking people about Marley and Tupac and Rambo and others, you know, like who's important. And usually, particularly with, you know, like ex-combatants, former commanders, people like that, that the response was electric. I mean, boy, did they have a lot to say. I remember, there was this ex-combatants in Northern Uganda. We had a long impassioned discussion. You know, these kids were like 12, 14. They knew so much about Tupac. I was, it was stunning. You know, and the whole discussion, did I think that Tupac was still alive? Because how can he be dead? There are all these CDs, all this music is coming out. He can't be dead. Tupac is alive. Don't you agree? You're from America, <laughs> you tell us. Things like that. So I was having these conversations everywhere I went. Um, and it was very, very, very difficult to get funding to study this because I, I decided I wanted to trail it and uh, to see what, what this was all about. And it sounded, I think, to most when I would apply for grants, you know, it sounded kooky. And I finally got some research to go in 2005, and it was what I learned, I mean, it was just stunning information really there was it was weird because people my god did they want to talk about this no one had ever asked them apparently um but it, it was not completely new information because there was corroborating research that would mention tupac and marley um and rambo and sometimes linking those three together um so there was this sort of package, I started calling them the big three. There were others, um, but those were the three that were clearly the focus. And so then I got some funding that, again, this is now 2009 for the US Institute of Peace for a fellowship to start this book. And I got some funding to go back again. And it's on the basis of those two studies. I mean, I've, I've been in Sierra Leone doing research or with Sierra Leone and refugees, like in 2000 in Gambia, a total of six times. Um, 
two studies, two trips were primarily focused for the on pop culture and the war, the, the, sort of the way the war was fought. So that's how the book started. And, uh, you know, it's taken a long time to get this bloody book finished. Uh, <laughs> well, it sounds so interesting and such a different uh such a different angle that you've taken to discuss these these things, and as you uh, as you mentioned before we started recording, this is almost. I mean, this show is all about inclusion and education. Here we're talking about th- some of the most excluded people from education you could imagine, right? Without spoiling too much of the book, because I really want to read it, and I'll put a link in the show notes as well to where it can be found. Okay, appreciate that. Um, but without spoiling too much, what? What kind of themes have come out of the book in regard to these uh, adolescents and youth that have been so excluded from not just education systems, but from society, I suppose? Well, I, I mean, I think w- one of the most important issues is uh, about this entire study is the significance of alienation and how when you're living in a repressive state and there is no opportunity for peaceful dissent, um, as has been the case in Sierra Leone for a very long time, um, plus you are basically trapped. You can't, not only can't you get married, your options for education, as an example, is seen as the only way out of your trap for most youth in Sierra Leone. And um, you know, it hasn't really been available uh, or of a very good quality. So it, it, it's been a kind of a punishing lifestyle, and there's a gender dimension there between the male youth have certain issues and female youth have certain issues in this as well. Um, and so this all, the, the whole thing started in the 70s when there was this, this guy named uh, the president, Shaka Stevens, um, was not allowing any dissent whatsoever. And from what I got from Sierra Leoneans, the Sierra Leonean music was pretty boring, and besides traditional music, but it, it, contemporary music was boring because you couldn't sing about anything except like patriotism. Nobody was particularly interested in those. They weren't that popular, those songs. Uh, so in this void came the reggae stars for, you know, excluded youth, particularly male youth um, who were really targeted for attacks in the, uh, in, particularly in Freetown, but uh, across the country, but particularly in Freetown. And so what happened was there were all these young kids, um, including university students, out of school youth, and everyone in between, sort of gathering together and listening to um, reggae music, Burning Spear, Peter Tosh, and more than anybody else, Bob Marley. And what they found with Marley was that Marley spoke to them Marley was seen almost as a prophet. His ideas um, radiated to the everyday realities of a Sierra Leonean young person. And then there is this process of becoming conscious of of, um, the the underlying realities in your life. And you do that by listening to reggae, particularly most prominently um, Marley, and smoking marijuana. And when you do that, I think also in in a community, it's you start to realize how you're being oppressed. And, uh, you know, Marley talks about this a lot in his music. Don't let them fool you or even try to school you. You've got a mind of your own. 
Well, that's what conscious being conscious, getting conscientized. That's one of the terms. Yeah. Uh, and then get up, stand up as well. Get up, stand up was the most important uh, song by far. Uh, mm. um, stand up for your rights. Uh, but, you know, um, these songs, this is global popular culture. They're locally interpreted. So one of the, if you listen very carefully to Crazy Baldhead by Marley, it's a pretty scary song. And um, it's really talking about revenge. And it makes very clear who they're attacking. Chase those crazy bald heads. Um, so in Sierra Leone, a, cra- a bald head became a government official. All police, all government officials, including the military, those are bald heads. So the song became a rallying cry to a large degree. Um, but without question, get up, stand up. And then in the 80s, here comes the Rambo movies, and they're showing them uh, all over the country. Uh, quite often, um, if you can imagine being a young child sitting outside, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie, a public movie outside under the sky, because it's quite a powerful experience. And, uh, you know, this would be like a generator, and you pay a little money, and you go sit down, and they would show videos. Um, There were these pickups that would go around to all the diamond mines, villages, towns, and cities, charge money, you you pay money, you go and you sit outside under the sky. And what did they watch? Rambo, Rambo movies. They were the most popular. And kids memorized these movies all over Sierra Leone. So one of the things about Sierra Leone that I think is important to know as an exception is um, Creole, that is a Creole, it came in with freed slaves who came back to Freetown and they brought their language or they created this language called K-R-I-O, Creole. It's a Creole English. Um, what it did is it made, and I think 95% of the country of, of Sierra Leoneans can speak it. So it, what it does is it makes English language popular culture accessible to virtually everybody. They can understand it. Now, Bob Marley, very intentionally, I think, sings very slowly most of the time with incredible diction in English. It's very easy to understand him if you know a bit of English. Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. I mean, you can understand what he's saying. Um, And the Rambo movies don't have a lot of dialogue. So again, and and the dialogue is quite meaningful, but, um, but there's often not a lot of it. And what happened is, is during the 80s, these kids virtually memorized these movies. So Tupac comes in when the war starts in 1991. And the interesting thing about Tupac is that the impact was, it was like a thunderclap. It was electric for excluded male youth. So one of the things they've always been called is a tug, T-H-U-G, pronounced tug in, in Sierra Leone. He, this guy is a thug. He tattooed it on his belly, thug life. The eye in the life is a bullet. And, and so, and he's proud of being a thug. Imagine for people that are castigated as being losers, no matter what they do, they're bad people, they're thugs. Here it is, this guy comes in and says, hey, I'm a thug too. And I'm proud of it. I got nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, Tupac, he just... It was electric. 
what he did. So Marley was the most important. Rambo, the movies, everybody had, the kids had memorized. And then here comes Tupac. And he's, you know, he's an unapologetic, you know, thug life guy. And uh, raps about everything. You know, he's good. He's good. He's thinking of killing himself. He's worried if he'll, he'll survive another year or two. He's uh, he talks about being basically an underclass male youth, why he's trapped in, in violence and all kinds of other issues. So these three characters were heroes and um, all talked about they're blaming us. We didn't do anything which is exactly what uh, Rambo says in the first movie, you know, but I didn't do anything. And so that idea is very much a part of all three um, uh, pop culture icons. And they had an incredible impression and influence on young people in Sierra Leone. And then it was almost impossible for military commanders not to exploit that because they were obviously low hanging fruit and they Mm. did. Well, it's so, it's so interesting. And to avoid us spoiling too much more, Mark, I will, uh, I'll wrap up there and put a link to the, to the book in the show notes. Just very quickly before we go, where can, where can people find the, where can people find the book? Well, the, uh, it's supposed to be out on amazon.com in about a week. As I under, I understand the, the press is university of Georgia press, which is, you know, online. Right now, the information is on MarkSummers.com, and uh, there's a, a list of all my books there, and there's information about We Young Fighters, but the pre-ordering should start in about a week. The book release date is October 1st of this year, 2023. Fantastic. We Young Fighters, Pop Culture, Terror, and War in Sierra Leone. Mark Summers, thank you for being my guest today. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to be here. That was Mark Summers. My thanks to him for joining me today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Goal 4, you can share it around. You can also subscribe. Listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week.